Well, let me start with this. What made you pick The Silence of the Lambs, Constantine, Crazy Stupid Love, and Election? Basically just availability of uh, those movies. Like I had Silence of the Lambs was one of the blind buys that I did on my most recent Criterion shopping spree. And good for you. Constantine was on Netflix. Uh, Election. Oh, Election was another Criterion collection blind buy. And then what was Crazy Stupid Love? That was Netflix. So yeah, it was like two Netflix ones. They, they just happened to have been added in the past few weeks and they were on my list. And uh, then the other two were Blu-rays that I'd owned but never watched. And of course, everyone's got all the time in the world. So. Yeah. So the one thing about Criterion is like, even if you're against physical media and, and you think it's silly, the Criterion stuff, they give you a lot of like extra written material um, that you can read through. And it's quite fascinating, especially the stuff on the Science of the Lambs. I don't know if you've been able to leaf through it, but they talk about the, the production and some of the ideas they had. And I thought all that was really interesting. I don't know how deeply you looked into that. I didn't get too far, but I did watch the there was one documentary on the like feature disc in the collection Okay, right, right. I remember uh, that. It's like, I think it's only 17 or 18 minutes. But yeah, it's not long. Uh, it's like it's, a TV featurette. Yeah, and it's basically an interview with a film critic, and she's going through various things about like the evolution of the Hannibal Lecter character and, and stuff. So it's kind of like a, it's a teaser for the much more in-depth uh, bonus features on the second disc in the set, which I haven't got to yet. The staging for that featurette is very 90s, eh? Uh, yeah. Like, it just feels old. It's just a lady in a chair, I think. And she's just kind of talking to you off a teleprompter. And there's no, like, fancy graphics, no, like, weird editing or cuts or anything. It's just this lady who's talking to yeah, you. Yeah, and then they, like, they intercut it with a few clips from some of the other uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter-related stuff over the years you know right. the the various movies and then the the tv show that was i, I think it was like on nbc or something um with uh, mads mickelson but yeah so that was my that was my first exposure to the whole world of lecter and the books and the movies and the, and the media and uh it's it's made me interested in some of the other stuff even though i know that a lot of it certainly the movies are not that good have you read the books? no i haven't read the books oh read the books especially uh red dragon is way better like, the book is way better than the movie. Right. The movie, I think, was kind of underrated because if you watch it now, it's actually really creepy. But the books, I think, are still superior to the film. But the film, Silence of the Lambs, is is as close as I think you could get in terms of the quality of the book in matching it. Right. But we'll get but, into uh, all of that. Yeah, let's in get the, into yeah. let's Let's <laughs> intro and then let's talk about Silence of the Lambs. How does that sound? All right. Let's give it a roll. Welcome to the 71st episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love TV and film. My name is Jason Chen, and I'm joined today by my partner in crime, Robert Snow. Today, we talk through some of the old movies I've been bugging Rob to watch, including The Silence of the Lambs, Constantine, Election, and Crazy Stupid Love. And we'll talk about The Hunt, a movie that Rob recently watched at home. But the big topic will be the twisting, winding tale that is Tiger King, Netflix's new hit documentary. And we'll also touch on Dirty Money, the other Netflix documentary series that also highlights some of the most despicable people in the world. So, Silence of the Lambs though, before we get to the good stuff. 
Um, oh, well, can I just say that that was a very good intro? Oh, thank that you. That was one of our best intros. Thank you. Um, I, I wrote this. I wrote it out this time. Uh, did you really? Were you reading off of a written script? I was. I need to write this stuff down. Oh, my down. God. Because I, like, I, I, I can't do off the cuff anymore. It sounds too wishy-washy, but... Oh, okay. Well, uh, impressive that you, like, you wrote that down in the space of, like, the, what was it, like, the four minutes that we were talking before we started? <laughs> uh, like, half an hour before <laughs> we started. I was like, ah, I need oh, to write okay. this down. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm prepared this time. Come on. Wow. All right. All right. I um, actually uh, am prepared with a lot of um, Silence of the Lambs factoids, too, but oh, I just want to okay. get your first thoughts about the movie because it's it's brilliant it's one of my top four in letterbox yeah well i feel like i i should get like a little uh, friendship medal or something because i finally watched all four <laughs> of the movies that you've listed as your favorites on letterboxd okay well so next time you come to vancouver or next time i see you we'll, we'll go out and i'll buy you, I'll buy you a meal or something <laughs> okay that works uh, for your time <laughs> well so the story of like my watching uh or non-watching uh of Science of the Lambs is, uh, I mean, Jason's been bugging me to watch this forever. And honestly, I do feel a little bit ashamed that, you know, one of the greatest movies, if not of the 90s of all time, uh, in many critics estimation, I'd never seen. And I don't really know how that is. I mean, I think I certainly, you know, I was like, what, maybe like two or three years old when it came out. And then, of course, yeah, I saw this much later, too. uh, And yeah, and I don't know if it was just like, maybe it was my I had a I wasn't too into horror movies for a long time. Right. And it's only been in the past couple of years that I've been trying to watch some of the like brand new horror movies that, you know, the cream of the crop, essentially, well, the one or two that come out every year that people really um, get behind. So maybe that was the reason. But of course, you know, you tell anybody that you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs and you're a movie buff. And of course, people are like, what? You know, it's it's up there with like. Uh, Citizen Kane and, and other stuff uh, when it comes to like movies that you have to watch and now having watched it I'm like yeah I uh, I can see what everyone was raving about it even though it's a serial killer type movie with you know all of the signposts of a typical kind of murder mystery kind of thing almost the kind of thing that you would find everywhere on Netflix these days both like scripted TV shows and documentaries it still has this kind of like the execution of it is so on point that you just kind of have to sit back and go, oh, yeah, OK, this is why this thing is held up as such a masterclass. You're not real FBI, are you? I'm still in training at the academy. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. Yes, I'm a student. I'm here to learn from you. Maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified enough to do that. Mm-hmm. That is rather slippery of you, agents, darling. So my mom had watched this and she's not a big horror movie person. But as I got older, she's like, you need to watch this because this is incredible. Um, for a while, it was on TV, but like an edited version. And finally, I think I was around like way too young still maybe around 10 or 11. Oh, wow. Where where I sat down and, and, and watched this film and I was blown away. And with each viewing, like I watched this movie, it's probably one of my most watched movies ever. And with every viewing, you always come away with something new. And you're always, even though you know where the story is going, you're always kind of amazed by how they managed to pull this off and how each time you're still terrified of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, and even though like, um, you know, broadly speaking, he's not the main villain in air quotes uh that the the fbi character uh, clarice starling played by jodie foster uh is trying to find 
like the the entire movie kind of is in his orbit basically yes because um, everything revolves around him because he is like this fountain of information for Cleary Starling and he's kind of playing cat and mouse with her and that's a big part of like the psychological element of that film mm-hmm. um, I thought Jodie Foster was brilliant as Clary Starling there are a lot of other actresses that were up for this role um, so famously Meg Ryan turned this one down uh, Michelle Pfeiffer turned this one down uh, Laura Dern was in the mix for a while but Jodie Foster had to really fight for this role and you could see it in in Clary Starling's character where she's like this female in this male dominated um, occupation and because she's so small in stature and everyone else around her looks like a giant, there's this like really striking juxtaposition between her ability and who she is versus the rest of the other FBI agents. Big time. Yeah. Well, I was struck by how like the this is a movie that is kind of advancing the uh, like a feminist kind of. Yeah, uh, totally. Kind of point of view, but without like hammering you over the head with it. And it's it, it's a kind of it's done in a way that we that feels instantly recognizable today because there's all kinds of movies and TV shows that yes. are putting forward Clarice Starling as played by Jodie Foster type characters in their uh, their scripts. And it's still being done this way because arguably the the same like societal issues that uh the movie was confronting when it came out are still present today and like you know there's incremental progress being made but maybe not fast enough um so it it does feel like weirdly ahead of its time definitely i think so how do you think this movie would have turned out if it had been michelle pfeiffer or meg ryan or laura dern in the role i could see laura dern or michelle pfeiffer in the role not so much meg ryan i mean no no offense against meg ryan i i see her more in like a romantic comedy kind of vibe because it you know oh yeah she, she hates that um reputation though as like america's sweetheart i know she does but yeah but you know that's it is what it is um so obviously like pfeiffer and dern have a uh, uh they've played characters with more edge in their careers so but i still think you're right though that like foster brings an uh, like um for lack of a better word, like an innocence to it. And a strength, like a really quiet strength that gets tested all the time. Yeah, so the right before this, um, Jodie Foster had done The Accused, which is a movie I have a lot of trouble sitting through, but it's about a woman who gets gang raped. And Jodie Foster plays that woman, and she's kind of is stuck in this situation where it's her word versus against other men. And so she has this, I think built-in experience from playing uh, the woman in The Accused, and it translates well, very well into Silence of the Lambs. But Pfeiffer famously was rejected because they thought she was too pretty for the role. Oh. Um, she obviously turned it down as well, but Pfeiffer has also turned down Basic Instinct, uh, which is another like R-rated, um, very tense thriller, a little bit more sexual, of course. But Meg Ryan uh, felt it was too violent for her, which I get. And at the time, Laura Dern wasn't like a big name. So that's why they passed on her. And it took, I think, a while for Jodie Foster to convince Jonathan Demme to play the role of Clarice. I don't know if you know this, but Jonathan Demme originally wanted Sean Connery as Dr. Lecter, which I think would have been the worst choice in the world. Like, no offense to Sean Connery. He's not right for the role, though. I mean, it's... No, and imagine him with a Scottish accent. It doesn't work. Eh? <laughs> he just... The dude... Like, it's not going to go away. And if he plays Lecter, he's going to have a Scottish accent. Yeah. Um, the other choice, reportedly, was Robert De Niro. And I thought that was an interesting one. I could see that more than Connery. Yeah, but, like, 
both of them, I think, really pale in comparison because Lecter has this like creepy vibe. Eh? Like it's something in his eyes and his teeth and the close-ups that Jonathan Demi gets makes him super creepy. Yeah, and like the like there's a lot going into the vocal performance that that um Hopkins is doing yes. where it's kind of like it's a much higher kind of register than the way he normally speaks. Right. And there's a kind of like lilt to it that uh-huh. uh that immediately makes you you're like, "Oh wow, okay, that's different." And uh it it kind of perks your ears up. Right. Um the other thing, too, was that this movie kind of has a famous production history in that Gene Hackman was originally attached to it. Um, he was going to play, I think, either Lecter or Crawford, the FBI director. Oh, yeah. And uh, the story goes that Gene Hackman's daughter read the script or read the book. And she's like, Dad, you can't do this. This is too violent. And a lot of people rejected this film on the grounds that it was too gruesome and violent. Because I don't know if you... Notice, but like in the first few scenes where Jodie Foster first visits the inmates, she gets basically assaulted, and it's quite striking. And uh, well, it's quite, very visceral. I mean, yeah, know, like visceral, he, exactly. Like she gets, she gets like semen thrown on her by this uh, inmate who's, uh, yeah, and uh, it's something that like you know you could a hundred percent see as plausible for somebody who's like visiting a an asylum. Mm-hmm. Especially one with like that kind of creepy Victorian basement kind of cells for the for the inmates, um, but it's uh, it's it's still like a shocking image. You don't see that kind of thing very often uh, in a mainstream Hollywood yeah. movie. Did you know that this was released on Valentine's Day? Ooh, I did not. So apparently that was Jonathan Demme, the director's idea. Uh, that's because I, Orion Pictures at the time was actually like in huge financial trouble. I think shortly after this film, they they basically went bankrupt. But uh, they had another film that was that was like for sure gunning for the the Oscars, and that was Dancing with Wolves. And so that became like the the awards sort of uh, season release. And then this was released earlier in the year, and then. Uh, they had like a huge campaign for it. Ended up winning five, the big five Oscars. Uh, one of the few films to actually do it. Yeah. Um, famously, though, uh, the author of the book, um, Thomas Harris, has never reportedly seen the film. That's like a, a major power move when you're like, uh, you write a book and it's adapted into a critically acclaimed, beloved adaptation, and you're still like, eh, I can pass. But here's the thing he didn't pass because he didn't like it. He passed because he felt that if if Anthony Hopkins was so good as Lecter, Lecter would end up being Hopkins's character and not Harris's. Oh. So in the subsequent books, Thomas Harris felt that he would have had trouble coming up with stories for Lecter because Anthony Hopkins had already embodied this character. And this isn't unlike John le Carre with um, Alec Guinness in the role of Smile oh, in the old BBC yeah. series. Yeah. The reason why Lakari didn't want to watch it because he thought uh, Guinness was so good uh, that he couldn't even write Smiley ever again. Huh. I wonder if uh, if Lakari stuck to that after the um, uh, Gary Oldman played him in that adaptation from a few years back. Yeah, I, I think Smiley seems like a more easily playable, more accessible character to play. There's something about Lecter's intelligence and 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 threatening sort of presence, even though Hopkins is not a big guy, that's really hard to replicate for any actor. Like Sean Connery's an imposing dude, but he's not creepy. No. <laughs> and you would, you know, you would, any viewer would, 
people like to say that like it's unfair to typecast actors um, because you know if you've got a comedy actor who really wants to do a drama and then they they do the drama people don't take them seriously because they're too used to them being a, a comedian and the other way around uh, that it's kind of unfair to treat actors that way they should be allowed to do whatever projects they want but then it's sometimes it is really hard because yes. you you get uh, as a viewer you get uh, used to a particular person doing a particular role and then when they tried something else although with Connery like you're right he would have had a hard time shedding the accent uh if at all so i don't think he would have tried to shed it yeah so that would have been a problem any final thoughts about science of the lambs before we move on um no other than like uh people should if if you're like me and somehow it kind of flew past you either run out and get the criterion edition or i think it's pretty easy to get on streaming now yeah. too it's uh it's not not one of these classics that's been kind of uh put in the bin and hard to find i think you can get yeah. it on amazon and uh maybe not netflix in canada but uh, certainly other streamers right. as well so speaking of actors who kind of play similar roles all over again uh how about keanu reeves and constantine like this is very like precursor to john wick precursor to like a lot of action movies that he's done that deals with like supernatural or like hellfire and demons yeah um so and it's funny how like at first i was like i i was having a hard time seeing the through line in the movies that i was catching up on but i do <laughs> i do sure to see the segue there so that's kind of cool um no but the yeah i think i remember when the trailer for constantine came out and right. I that was round that was 2005 that was round about when like I was becoming really aware of Rotten Tomatoes being a thing it had existed before that but uh, but then like the reviews dropped for Constantine good. and it was like pretty I can't remember the official score but it definitely wasn't fresh uh, no. it was you know was very maybe around like middling. 30 40% yeah. and it the the kind of consensus was that it was a fine kind of like it had some kind of uh, some fun creature feature type stuff and some cool production design and Keanu was pretty solid, but the overall experience of the movie was kind of meh. Oh, okay. And I I kind of agree with that assessment, but you're right. Like there's there is a there are certain experiences in it when taken individually that are fun. Like I the the movie a movie that came out the exact same year. Hellboy, Guillermo del Toro. Right. There are similarities. Has some, you know, with this this kind of like connection between the supernatural and religion, um, like a secret war that's being waged between um, defenders of good, defenders of evil, heaven and hell. Um, Hellboy brought in that aspect, you know, that he was using like uh, bullets filled with holy water and stuff like that, but also more mystical, less like Christian related stuff as well. Yes, uh, this is very. This has got a very Catholic kind of le uh, leaning to it, where it's uh, it's very kind of coded with uh, uh, with kind of gothic imagery and exorcisms and all the stuff that the that the Catholic Church is all about. What does he want from me? Only the usual self sacrifice, belief. I believe the Christ's no, sake. No, no, you know. And there's a difference. You've seen. I never asked to see. I was born with this curse. A gift, John. So this is one of my first first viewings of Tilda Swinton. Oh, okay. And from that point on, I was just like terrified of her <laughs> because she plays this like this hellish creature. I think she plays like an angel gone bad. Right? Yes, yeah. She plays uh, Gabriel, who's who in this is not like a a full blooded angel, but is kind of a mixed breed. Right. And I was legitimately terrified. And for a while, this was like Keanu Reeves is like um, 
spot where there was some sort of action element. There was a tortured main character, um, which I think like draw kind of parallels his sort of personal life. And this sort of like eternal battle between good versus evil. I, I think he's always had that element in a lot of his films. If you think about like The Matrix or even John Wick. Yeah. I actually really like parts of this film as a whole. I agree. It's, it's very middling. Like it's not going to excite you. Um, but I do enjoy certain moments of it because as you said, there is a del Toro vibe to this. There's things I'll watch in like red, orange heat glows. Um, there are certain shots that are like very neo-noir. There's a sort of like history or a mystery element to it. Yep. Um, where he has like guys who design weapons for him, guys who are very knowledgeable about the Bible and other, or, uh, biblical literature that help him along. Um, and Rachel Weiss is in this too. And, and there's a shot where she's in a pool. It's in the final moments and he's trying to save her in time. And that was one of like the most lasting shots that really stuck with me because of the colors and literally the amount of blood there was. Yeah. Like it is, um, it doesn't spare the gore, uh, which I appreciate. Um, it, you know, the, the production design of some of his weapons is just flat out cool. Like very, again, yes. like similar to what Del Toro does, where he at one point he's wielding this uh, shotgun that's shaped like a crucifix and it fires these like uh, uh, these explosive um, charges that uh, turn vampires slash zombie mm-hmm. enemies into dust. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, there's a bit of like a kind of like a yeah kind of thing to it. So it has all these like really good parts. But for you, where does it fall apart? Like, why doesn't it come together into something that's bigger or better received? I think, you know, taken, if you compare it against Hellboy, which we've been doing, Hellboy is a, a like, he's a more compelling character, I think. Um, they're both comic book characters too, eh? They're both comic book characters and they're both like demon hunters, but but uh, Hellboy has got a very distinct kind of like, he's a blue collar guy just trying to save the earth kind of thing. And and he's he, a devil. He's a devil, you know, he's he's partly from the, the dimension that is causing all the trouble and he's at war with with his identity and stuff like that whereas Constantine is you know his ability to see these otherworldly creatures is a burden for him uh, that other people would interpret as a gift so there's some parallels but he's just a little bit more like he's more salty and misanthropic than Hellboy and he's not really cracking wise in the same way he just feels kind of Mm -hmm. kind of angsty and so you you can't really get on his level in the same way and then you know, the movie is itself, like the set pieces, you know, they're, it's fine leading up until I would say I, when it gets to the conclusion and like Satan shows up, Satan is, is played by uh, Peter Stomar and this like great kind of bit of uh, tongue in cheek costuming where Satan is actually dressed mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. beautiful white suit and is like barefoot, uh, which was a cool design. But then they, the, the ending kind of drags a little bit where they're, you know, it's implied that Constantine will get a ticket into heaven, but then Satan kind of pulls a trick on him at the last minute and says, well, I'll cure your lung cancer if I can still get a chance of like corrupting you and getting you down to hell with me. And it just kind of, it, it drags that out along and it just gets sillier and sillier. And, and I was like, (laughs) I think I would have preferred it if it, if it ended sooner or if it, if it skipped over all of that kind of metaphysical stuff and went right to Constantine is going to hit the road again and, you know, go back out and fight more monsters, which I guess was their play for a sequel, but I figured it should have come just a little bit sooner. Right. And, uh, right. And not get so mired down. But other than that, 
yeah, like, like you were saying, it's, you know, individual scenes are really solid. Um, some of the creature effects and the, the special effects work really well. But uh, for me, it doesn't it doesn't feel quite as together as something like Hellboy. Yeah, I think there are too many ideas they wanted to extrapolate, but didn't have an idea of how to tie it together or just ran out of time. Um, yeah. If you're into this sort of like demon hellscape sort of thriller type movie, uh, there's another one I'd say. Su- kind of suggest it i only suggest you watch it if you can find it it's a 1999 film called the ninth gate uh by oh, i've roman heard the Pol- title yeah it's by roman polanski and it stars uh, johnny depp um and don't know how i feel about that <laughs> well i think you can watch a movie without you know being you know i guess if you can ignore that this is a polanski film i, I think maybe kind of bearable to watch i guess it's not a great film by any means but but it's an interesting sort of like film in a similar vein. Um, There's not a comic book or a superhero film at all, but it, it, there are certain notes that, that are very similar. I see. Okay. So then flipping over to completely different genres then after that, <laughs> like, you know, total cognitive dissonance here. Uh, let, we'll quickly run through uh, Crazy Stupid Love, I guess. Again, like this is a movie that I, I've, I actually remember watching the trailer when it hit uh, the internet. Right. I think this uh, Crazy Stupid Love came out in 2011 and I, you know, I I had not watched all the way through The Office, but obviously I knew who Steve Carell was at the time. I knew who Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone were, uh, but I, for some reason, like the movie came and it went and I think it, at the time it received, you know, relatively positive reviews, nothing glowing or anything like that. And then I just kind of forgot about it for a long time and right. then it popped uh, like like is the case with so many things popped up on Netflix a few weeks back added to my queue and I was like oh okay I'll finally see what whether the uh, <laughs> uh, the trailer that I watched eons ago actually lived up to because I remember that trailer being you know they, they seem to capture some decent kind of chemistry in it yeah so um, especially between like Gosling and Stone this was a movie that's forgettable because among the romantic comedies um, this is clearly one of the most forgettable ones. And if you think about Ryan Gosling romantic movies, everyone goes to The Notebook, right? Yeah. And with Emma Stone, it's easy A. So this was kind of those uh, summer mainstream sort of like romantic comedies where this really suave kind of like really cool guy who doesn't get, care about anything meets this girl who just flips his world upside down. Like it's a very like uh, a, a very generic plot in that sense. And I think what helps along is that all three leads are very good. Um, this was at the time where Gosling was at his peak. And then there's a scene where, like, he takes off his shirt and he shows off his abs. And that was, like, the one lasting image everyone took away from the trailer in the film. Take off your shirt. Why? Please, will you take off your shirt? Because really? I can't stop thinking. And then you just... Okay, 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 okay. All right, okay, okay, okay. Fuck! Yeah, I think that's what I remembered because, you know, there's a bit of like that there's an aspect in that exchange where like he takes off his shirt. Emma Stone reacts in kind of like a come on kind of way. Like yeah, she just can't exactly. can't believe that she's been she's be, agreed to go home with a guy like him and or that he's interested in her uh, the, the other way around. Uh, and or that this guy is just like so like perfect. Yeah, but and there's an aspect of like there's an aspect of like wish fulfillment in that for yes, sure. For sure, um, any guy would love to have a body like that and impress a girl, not 
uh, not so much in like a kind of like fawning way, but like she's she's still ribbing him even though she's impressed. So there's a fun dynamic there. I can I can get I can understand that. Did you hit the gym right after Rob? Well, th- I would have, but of course the gym is closed because stupid pandemic. Oh, right. <laughs> you can still do it at home in your little. True. Your, yeah, uh, I've been working on that, but. Uh, yeah, there's there's obviously like there's a certain amount of like you know wish fulfillment, body envy kind of stuff. Yes, and um, then the and it's not just like their story either. Like it's a it's the movie is perhaps more accurately described as like an ensemble comedy. So you've got yes. the thread between Gosling and Stone. You've got Steve Carell's character who's like a an accountant type kind of mousy mousy dork kind of guy who uh, finds out that his wife wants a divorce his wife's played by julianne moore of course (laughs) and you know he he's kind of kicked to the curb he takes it you know relatively in stride but he's still like kind of stinging from it pretty hard meets up with ryan gosling's character at this fancy bar spends uh, a little bit too much time at the bar complaining about his marital situation and kind of inspires gosling to be his uh pickup artist dating coach kind of guy and so that kind of sets their their stories off on a thing and then there's a sort of a b or c plot where the son of steve carell's character is crushing on his babysitter and there's a bit of intrigue there that kind of builds to a climax and then everything is kind of brought to a conclusion uh all the characters kind of smash together in the way that these ensemble movies tend to do yeah but i felt that there's a there's like two climaxes in this movie. I agree. It's the pacing's weird. The first climax is the one that you actually care about because there's a decent enough twist. Like if you're not paying super close attention, it might catch you off guard. Um, and it's it's kind of like a rewarding. It's a fun fun kind of thing. The movie should have ended in the next scene after that. I think. But instead, it kind of like draws out this kind of. It's trying to make this argument about the, uh, like the title suggests that love is like crazy and stupid and you know you you hate being in love but you also love being in love and it culminates in this like second climax at a school graduation and steve carell's son is trying to make this argument that love is doesn't exist or if it does exist it's stupid and carell's character has to kind of stand up and very awkwardly and very uh, very cringily uh, <laughs> defend defend love in front of all of these p- uh, parents and students and everything and uh and then of course like you know uh you get the happy ending or whatever but it just like i understand the value of cringe comedy but i feel like this one pushed it a little bit too far and it just like and it wasn't even the cringe it was the it was it felt contrived it felt like a screenwriter had cooked this mm-hmm. up and thought it was the smartest thing in the world and and didn't question it after that point like nobody questioned whether this scene made any sense right. at all to be fair steve carell is one of the few actors who can make cringe bearable yes um if you go back and watch some of the office episodes oh man some of them yeah. are really really cringe it makes you like just bury your face in a pillow or something you just exactly. can't handle it yeah so i had the same criticism with crazy stupid love is that there were some scenes there's a lot of chemistry that was really good but at the end of it i, I couldn't really like describe the plot to you in in you know two sentences um there's just so much going on so many peaks and valleys and so when the final climax hits you're kind of like um, I'm not sure if this is going to be the end or not, but I'm going to go along with it. So it, it does feel strange in that sense in that the pacing feels either it either whipsaws too much or just flatlines because um, each climax doesn't touch that peak. Uh, yeah, it just kind of it feels written, you know, if that makes sense. It kind of 
it feels like an essay that like a high schooler would have written and obviously like that's kind of what happens in that <laughs> in that second climax but but you almost want the movie to to not kind of believe its own bullshit speaking of movie with lots of bullshit um in a good way election yeah um so this is a reese witherspoon film that kind of like catapulted her to to stardom and we talked about a little about um typecasting and because of this role she had been typecast um for a lot of her future roles but this is a story about a high school senior i believe yeah yeah who runs for class president and matthew broderick is the teacher who is wise to Reese Witherspoon's no good antics. And it's like he's a teacher who is committed to teaching. He's he's a, you know, he starts out as a good guy. It's clear he cares yes. about his job and, you know, making uh setting kids on the right path and everything. But there's something about the kind of like um high achiever um smarminess of Reese Witherspoon's character that just sets him off and makes it almost like it 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 reminds him that he could have uh, hit higher heights than he did and instead he's teaching history at a suburban high school there's a lot of subversive elements here at carver like rick Thiessen or kevin speck and those burnouts or what about tammy metzler i mean her whole thing is being anti this and anti that tracy you're a very intelligent girl you have a lot of admirable qualities but one day maybe you'll learn that being smart and doing whatever you need to do to get ahead, and yes, stepping on other people to get there, well, there's a whole lot more to life than that. This is uh, Alexander Payne's, um, one of his first films, I believe, before he like really hit it big with like Sideways, The Descendants. Um, so you had obviously watched a lot of his previous work um, before you watched this. Um, could you tell right away it was like an Alexander Payne film, even if it's an early Alexander Payne film? Yes, uh, there's something about pain, and there are other yeah. there are other critics out there that have done a better job of kind of like voicing what it is that makes an Alexander Payne movie a pain movie. But he he kind of has his finger on like American suburban kind of ennui. That <laughs> it sounds kind of it sounds super pretentious, but but like he, I feel like he has a good thumb on problems that only white suburban americans will have yeah and, and that does feel like an overexplored uh aspect of movies you know i get it but uh-huh. but he but it, it feels so on point it feels so observant right and he that it's also kind of hard to see this movie now like um circling back to it uh, almost well, more than 20 years after it came out and not see it uh in combination with other movies that came out in 1999 like american beauty yes where you've got and even fight club and other there was the there was this whole bunch of movies in in 90 a lot of counterculture a lot of counterculture a lot of stories about white middle-aged dudes struggling with midlife their crisis yeah my, midlife <laughs> crisis and like and fetishizing younger women and um yes you know f- kind of raging against the place that they'd carved out for themselves in society. Um, again, that's a topic that has been better explored by uh, other very uh, smart people. But it happens here where like Broderick's character is, he can't quite voice why he, what makes him hate with Reese Witherspoon's character so much and makes her him want to undermine her student body president's campaign well because in this film he's kind of like the straight guy he sees through her bullshit yeah or well he he interprets it as as bullshit but like she 
she doesn't see it as bullshit at all. She's not she's not self-aware enough yet to really see it. And really, that's and interesting. It, I kind of disagree. But OK, that's how I read it. Like, I, I felt like she and I, it's funny that uh, it's funny, actually, that she ends up as a political staffer in Washington at the end of the movie. And yeah, she's kind yeah. of like that to me kind of speaks to like, you know, she's very able to sell herself on yes an ideal and not question it and i think exactly she, you know it uh maybe you could say that about anybody who has like political aspirations when they're in high school but uh <laughs> it's um I, I think that's that's one of the many observations in that, that 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 movie gets so right so it's it's a dark comedy and student government to me has always been one of like the biggest faults in western society <laughs> <laughs> i think student governments are just horribly run i i, I think everyone who does it is, is kind of self-servicing self-serving on some level and that's what I get from Tracy Flick, which is Reese's character. And and I think it's very, I don't think it's by coincidence that she becomes a political staffer um, because I think this is Payne's way of saying, look, like in high school, this is how we breed people to be this way. And Reese Witherspoon's character just happens to just nail it. Mm. She gets it. And not only, not only that, she ends up destroying the careers and the lives of other people in doing so. In the years after this movie, Reese Witherspoon um, ended up doing Cruel Intentions. And uh, Cruel Intentions, again, was like one of those films where um, there's something beneath the surface where young kids are very not so innocent and they get where they are and they get what they want through nefarious means. And then afterwards, she kind of parodies herself in Legally Blonde, which I thought was really, really funny. Um, but then she had crafted this, she had been typecast as this like really kind of bitchy, but super smart blonde girl. Yeah. And then she, you know, there was you know, lots of romantic comedies that she did. And now now in the, the past <laughs> yes. few years, she's been working a lot in in like streaming TV. And uh, uh, like right. from what I've heard, I haven't, I have people, again, people have told me. People are, are always telling you what shows that you're missing out on. But Big Little Lies is apparently like a tour de force from her. Yeah. Do you watch um, that? And now no. this. No. But again, like it's uh, it, it's it's one of those things where clearly like sh if you ever found yourself thinking that she had gotten herself stuck accidentally in like romantic comedy mode, she clearly is aware of that and is very, very able to break out of that whenever she wants. Yeah. I, I think that's a conscious choice by her, too, because she had been viewed at this like really bitchy mean girl and i think she i think there's a part of her that wanted to shed that when the first time i watched this i didn't really get it because dark comedy is kind of foreign to an 11 12 year old <laughs> um so i i understood the gist i understood that tracy flick is not this like super innocent character and i get that matthew broderick isn't a perfect character either but somehow he, he was always on the right wrong side of things despite being right um, but what did you think? Like, what are your final thoughts about election? I, I think it's, it is very interesting to, to do like maybe a double feature or a, even like a mini film festival kind of program where you have election on the same bill as American beauty. And maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe this is going to sound a bit weird. Uh, Ferris Bueller's day off where oh, okay. you kind of see like, you know, 
uh, and I would put like Ferris Bueller's Day Off is like it, it, it's pure kind of American comedy from the 80s where uh, Broderick is playing this guy who's like, you know, he's the one who's skating over the top of everyone and uh, cutting through uh, like bureaucracy and just having the best day ever. And, you know, there's some tr- some lessons are learned along the way, but ultimately he has a great day. And then progressing him to election where he's playing a guy who's like also in a high school setting but is very has transformed completely and is completely unlike the character that we see him in in uh ferris bueller's day off and then american beauty which is an even darker more cynical kind of take on american suburbia and uh and like election is uh, came out in 1999 when there was all these movies about like white dudes just not figuring out how to be good or um content or anything like that yeah um so you could there's there's kind of threads running between all of those things that i think make for make for a a very fun um and dark and cinematic experience (laughs) i agree uh speaking of cinematic experiences though you rented the hunt which is like is it your first time you've rented like a wide release film at home i guess yeah i mean something that would have been intended to be in theaters for a lot longer um and yes this was kind of the first crop of uh several movies that you know they had come out properly in in big screens and the studios behind them or the distributors decided that they were you know movie theaters are closing up due to the COVID 19 thing and they were offering them on streaming services for a 20 dollar rental fee and I had heard of The Hunt previously because it had been originally scheduled to come out last year. I can't remember which month, but right. um, it was a trailer came out and everything and a combination of things happened. Uh, the alt-right in America managed to get their hooks into it and they started pushing this this thing about this movie, which is supposed to kind of like send up the political situation in America by exaggerating things to an extreme. And they kind of started this PR campaign against this movie saying that it was, uh, it was making fun of Republicans and so quote unquote deplorables. And it was an example of the Hollywood elite kind of running rampant with their, you know, with their criticisms of, uh, of Republicans and uh, people on the, on that end of the political spectrum. But then even like President Trump ended up tweeting about it, you know, and he didn't mention the he didn't mention the movie by name, but it it was enough like it was clear that he was he had someone had told him about it or he'd watched some story about it on Fox News and you know he decided to slag the movie on his Twitter feed. Um, at the same time, there was a mass shooting in Texas, I believe, and that was enough to kind of make the producer say, "Ah, oh, it's a better idea if we just kind of pulled this movie for a little while." They scheduled it to come out in I guess it was like late February, early March of this year. It came out, but prior to that, they ran a, mar- a new marketing campaign where they said, "This see the movie that everyone's talking about despite the fact that they've never seen it. Yeah. Kind of something along those lines. Why would they do something like that? Same reason elites do anything, because they think they're better than us. Yeah, but, but why you? I mean, it seems so personal, right? <laughs> what, what, you think it's our fucking fault? No, 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 that's not what I'm... No, I would never blame the victim. Yeah. There have to be a reason is all. Actually, on the theatrical movie poster, there's the original release date and it's crossed out. And then they have the actual release date next to it, which is interesting. Right. So then, you know, amidst this kind of whole cloud of stuff, I just I even though, you know, everyone was locked down for the pandemic, I figured I had to seek this thing out and kind of see what it was all about. 
Uh, so and it's it's all right. It's it's a bit obvious. It's a Damon Lindelof uh, film, like written. By yeah, Damon or he Lindelof. like co-wrote or something. Um, and it's it, you know they didn't change anything from uh, the version that was going to come out in theaters originally. There was some people whispering that that might happen. Oh, okay. Um, but no, it's the movie's unchanged and. It depicts a world where a Twitter conspiracy theory spreads that a bunch of rich liberal elites are uh, planning to hunt a group of quote unquote deplorables for sport at some sort of like manor estate. Mm -hmm. And the movie opens with a bunch of these like red state deplorable types who fit broadly into like some stereotypes you've got like the the angry um racist podcaster guy and the the old fart coot who likes guns too much and uh you know the the rich country club girl who grew up in a in a republican family stuff like that they're all waking up in this um uh, this kind of game reserve with like ball gags in their mouths and they're, you know, given a bunch of weapons and then suddenly their people are trying to shoot, shoot them to kill them. And slowly you, they tease out this plot about like, oh, it was started as like a Twitter thread, but then it was never real. But the people who were kind of slagged in that Twitter thread, the, the rich people, the rich uh, democratic uh, types, they got so angry about being implicated in the fake conspiracy that they decided to do it for real and now we're watching these deplorable characters kind of try to outrun these 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 rich people who they they're not really all that fired up about it for real except they are it's essentially when what ends up happening is you have one of the deplorable characters played by Betty Gilpin who a lot of people might recognize from Glow she's one of the female wrestlers on on Glow and she turns out to have been a uh, mistaken for somebody else <laughs> classic Lindelof <laughs> they wanted to they wanted to put somebody into this human hunting thing who was just like a I think like some sort of car rental employee or something it turns out that Betty Gilpin's character has the exact same name but she's an Afghanistan veteran and is very handy in a fight and she just plows through all of these these rich uh, hunters who are uh, trying to kill her and makes her way to this um, manor that's been purchased by Hillary Swank a character played by Hillary Swank. How convenient. And they get into a fight and, you know, beat each other bloody. And it's supposed to be this allegory for, um, you know, uh, Democrats versus Republicans in everyday life. And that's kind of that, that. That's kind of like where the movie ends. It's 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 a little bit obvious. It doesn't really have the kind of subtlety that you would want, given the setup. And what it really, really needs is more of the. The rich characters, these liberal characters, mm -hmm. seeing the error of their ways. Instead, they're kind of just like dispatched in the goriest way possible by Betty Gilpin's character. When you kind of want them to, to you want more scenes of them kind of like freaking out and seeing just how absurd the situation is that they've created. So you don't you don't get that kind of like catharsis. You instead, it's just it's more like horror movie style executions is it kind of like the purge a little bit it's got but i feel like the Purge. with one of the reasons that the purge has spawned such a huge like franchise is that it it had a little bit more depth to it the world that it created this feels very surface level right and granted like the purge okay. is still ridiculous and it obviously it exaggerates things quite a bit but it it still feels a bit more plausible than this like you don't really buy the fact that these people would be so angry about being besmirched um in a twitter conspiracy that they would become the very thing that people said that they were 
Right. It just doesn't it doesn't feel plausible. So So do it, you think the poor reception of this film is based on the fact that people just don't like the politics? Yeah, it? and and that's like the ultimately the the movie is more interesting due to the conversation around it than the movie itself, which is which is ironic. <laughs> which is a bad sign. Yeah, you know, I mean like the fact that everyone freaked out about it in the way that they did mm-hmm. kind of confirmed the central idea of the movie but it didn't make it a good movie right if that makes sense you know no, that makes sense. like the yeah the, the whole idea is that people were fighting over nothing and that they were fighting to a stalemate and neither side was was 100 percent right mm-hmm. and that's kind of that's all the movie has to say and you're like well i didn't need the movie to confirm something i already knew right so you know, that, that these fights are pointless the other question i wanted to ask was like your experience of watching it at home i never mind the fact that the film you know wasn't very good but was there something different about the experience? Was there something positive or negative about it? Like, did you actually wish you saw this in a packed theater instead? Maybe if I was in with the right audience, I think that might have helped right. a little bit. If I was in kind of like a film festival audience where people were really amped up and mm-hmm. maybe enjoying themselves a bit and cheering and whooping and that kind of thing, that might have helped. But, you know, I mean, ultimately it, it felt like every other movie I've watched on Netflix, you know, I've, I have a right. decently sized TV and I was streaming it on, in this case, I got the rental from YouTube because they happen to have it. Did you like dim the lights, grab snacks, like kind of like simulate I did have like popcorn. a theater environment? Because I find that if you watch movies at home and you leave your light on, it actually just takes away from the experience. Like, I'm just not as focused for whatever reason. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I did have popcorn with me, so it's, uh, you know. Extra buttery. I didn't <laughs> I didn't do uh, I didn't do that intentionally. I was just in the mood for popcorn. You know, everyone yeah. <laughs> uh, with movie theaters being closed, you you know, if you're like me, you get a bit of a craving after a certain uh, week or so. Right. Yeah. It, you know, I didn't I didn't take too many extra steps to kind of try to simulate anything uh yeah it you know it's fine and and if you know if we're kept out of the movie theaters for uh a couple more months it might be something that i'll have to do again you know yeah pay pay the 20 bucks and and see something that was intended for for theatrical release Okay, so we've come to the end of uh, all of the kind of lightning round of all these movies, but it's taken up way too much time. So we're going to split this Mammoth episode into two parts. So come on back for part two, where we're going to get into both Tiger King on Netflix and Dirty Money. Uh, So come on back as soon as you finish this one. Or, you know, it's a pandemic. You can do it whenever. And uh, hear what we have to say about those two new shows. 